0: Welcome to the Joe Watt Podcast. I am Joe Vendramini from the Range Cattle Research and Education Center, and today our guest is Dr. Nicolas De Lorenzo. Nicholas, thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure. Been waiting. Been waiting for this moment.
0: And and Nicholas, can you please give us a little background information about you?
1: Sure. Um, well, I'm uh, originally from Argentina. I was. Uh, born and raised in a family that has strong ties to agriculture, mostly uh, beef cattle production. So my family still owns and, and operates a beef cattle ranch there. So I grew up basically with all, all the, uh, the culture of, of cattle production in, uh, Angus and Hereford. So black balded was our main product. But the cow calf with, uh, backgrounding and even some finishing, uh, and, uh, and the typical Argentinian Pampas regions where uh, we could finish cattle on grass to some extent. So now a lot of it is done on on grain. So that's kind of what got me excited about uh, agriculture in the first place and and, and beef cattle production. And many of, most of my ankles are involved in in beef production in one way or another. So I kind of grew up with the people that were like bidding on cattle, or a veterinarian, uh, or just uh, just producers that would be buying, and selling cattle. So it's always always uh, had that that surrounding my my uh, early, early youth days. So I, that that kind of got me excited about uh, animal science that I uh, studied in Argentina. The title there it's actually technical agriculture engineer, with has a, a strong emphasis in my University of Animal Science. And um, after that I was able to come to the US on an internship program. When I was in the last year of my career, I I saw signs in the in the hallway about uh, uh, internships in abroad. And I applied, basically ended up leaving and working in a farm in Northwest Iowa in Lake Park. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. I, I spent a year and a half a full year working and living with a family, um, cow-calf operation, backgrounding. Uh, we used to make silage. Uh, so doing a little bit of everything, fencing, um, riding the fence during the the backgrounding portion of that, and then uh, doing chores. They also had hogs, so I got to catch three pigs. So it was a very diverse operation, just, uh, just uh, soybeans and corn that they, they had quite a bit of that, so um, that that's how I I got to to know who then became my professor at the University of Minnesota, Alfredo de costanzo So this program was coordinated through the University of Minnesota. It's called the MAST program, Minnesota Agricultural Student Training. And uh, during that that program, I was I had the opportunity to to study a master's uh, and then a PhD at the University of Minnesota on beef cattle nutrition. And I uh, had the opportunity to go for two years to work at Texas Tech University in a postdoctoral uh, job, uh, more centered on uh, feedlot nutrition at that, at that time. And since 2010, I had the opportunity to, well, I applied for, for a faculty position at the University of Florida here at the uh, NFREC, and I've been there since. So I, after my, my years in Iowa, Minnesota, and uh, Texas, uh, the last 10 years of my life, I've been living in the Florida Panhandle. I'm extremely happy about it.
0: And, and Nicholas, uh, you have been doing um, a lot of work with methane emissions, and it's a, a topic that became quite current primarily relating, you know, those ruminants to methane emissions. Can you give us an uh, overall idea of the situation relating ruminants to methane emissions, like globally?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and honestly, that wasn't a topic that I was uh, very familiar with. I, I if you want to say I may maybe train more classical ruminant nutritionists. Uh, uh, done a fair amount of work with feed additives, and I continue to do so. And that that path led me to to dabble into methane emissions at probably at the right time when we didn't know uh, much about the the emissions itself. So I had the opportunity to to get a fairly good training on different techniques. Uh, that particularly the ones the challenging ones, which are the ones that allow us to measure methane under grazing conditions. So. Um, so that was uh, something that I really uh, I'm lucky I had the chance to do it to, to, uh, to learn those techniques because that, ex- that expanded my horizon in terms of research greatly uh, and, and methane is like most most everybody by now know it's a, a second or a byproduct of fiber digestion or, or feed digestion and ruminants so it's a as I call it or as I tell my students it's a necessary evil it's something that we need to produce in order to keep keep that thing going, that rumen. So, uh, and and by the time that uh, the cattle uh, release or form that methane gas and they belch it, and that's firm mis- misconception, I would like to try to address more than 95% of the methane comes through the mouth and not through the other end. So we'll see a lot of pictures with, with cattle uh, throwing flames on the back end. That's that's a myth. <laughs> the majority of it comes from the mouth. So uh, I, I just started learning uh, a lot about methane. And and I I guess I came at the right time in Florida when we were facing uh, some pressure from uh, in terms of the environmental impact of beef cattle production. Um, and and at that time, I realized that, that maybe it was a bigger problem than, than I thought. So my first... Uh, it, Attempts on that was just to quantify it. I wanted to have Florida numbers or Southeast numbers of methane emissions and grazing cattle. So we did, we got probably the first uh, uh, publication showing emissions under grazing conditions in, in Florida. And then um, that kind of took his own, that, that whole project took his own uh, uh, life. And, and now to the point that we even got a USDA grant and now we're kind of trying to tie that into production. I always say that the methane issue, it, it's, it's uh, one that has to be considered in the context of overall production. And that's what I like to define. So met- methane, you, you asked about the impact. It's it's debated right now, but you can say between 14 and 16% of the total emissions are attributed to cattle globally. Now, if we look in the US, because of the amount of grain we feed in the finishing stages, which more people, uh, most people may not know that that it actually reduces methane, the high-grain diet. So uh, considering that, the overall production or the overall contribution of agriculture to greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. is around 9%. Of that, about 40, 50%, it's it's livestock. So we always say that it's probably no more than 4% between 3.2 and Uh, and maybe 3.8% of the greenhouse gas emissions is what we can blame cattle So as you can see, it's it's a fairly small amount. Not to say that we should not do our part, and that's kind of what I've I've been trying to do, but in the context of other scenarios like the, the energy generation industry or even transportation, um, we got uh, a lot of lower hanging fruits. But but nevertheless, that's an area that I've been very passionate and I continue to do research. And um, I, like I said, I try to do it in the context of production. So in other words, most of my trials, we address methane reductions in terms of per unit of product. In other words, if we have something that shows promise in terms of reducing methane emissions like we have done in public work with nitrates, for instance, as an alternative to urea, non-protein nitrogen source. Uh, we always like to address that in the context of production. In other words, how much methane we reduce per unit of average daily gain, per unit of uh, per pound of beef produced, per pound of milk, etc. And I, I truly believe that's the way that, that we need to go so that we don't hurt our capacity to produce uh, high quality protein like we have been doing so successfully for
0: many years and and Nicolas, uh beside those efforts with methane um, would you like to to tell us um, some other projects that you have been work on on the panhandle sure so
1: uh, you know, one of the things I remember when I first came here that surprised me is uh, uh the well, maybe in North Florida, particularly, just the opportunities that were there that still are here for uh, adding value to Florida Cat. That's one of my biggest efforts and extension uh, that I have that I've been trying to promote is, is the opportunities when possible, not always possible and not for every producer, but to add value to Florida Cat by, by the way of backgrounding and. Um, Taking advantage of preconditioning program when they pay, which no not always they do, but backgrounding, uh, stocking. And we do have enough, surprisingly to many people, we have enough uh, industries in in Florida, uh, such as citrus, we had a very strong cotton and peanut production in the panhandle. Uh, There is a lot of byproducts from those industries that fit so nicely into cattle production, not to even mention distiller's grain that it may not be produced. In Florida, but we enjoy some of the byproducts of uh, corn ethanol, like DDGS. Um, also, there's companies that haven't even uh, made a successful uh, enterprise out of feeding recycled human products, like feed, feed waste, like bakery type candy, things like that. There's companies that have taken advantage of that. So, I think we do have an enormous amount of. of co-products and byproducts in, in Florida uh, that in addition to the capacity to do winter grazing, at least in North Florida, give a great opportunity to, um, to to be able to add value to those calves and then perhaps sell them to the feedlots, as yearlings and instead of uh, calves at, at a premium price or at least just a premium over uh, the alternative that might be winning them uh, on the track, basically, which is, it's a practice that it, it's commonly done and it, it, it's necessary. And, and like I say, particularly Central and South Florida, there is additional challenges that may not allow us to do that in, in, in every situation or in most situations. But I think we have some opportunities, uh, particularly in, in North Florida, South Georgia, and Alabama, where, where uh, that could happen. And then add value to Florida cattle. I do, I'm, I'm a true believer after 10 years. I'm a, I didn't mention in my bio that I'm, I'm I guess a zero generation Floridian. And my daughter will be the first generation. She was born here in, in Mariana, Florida. But I, after this 10 years in, in, in Florida and learning about uh, cattle production, I, I realized that we do have exceptional genetics and a great management. Uh, and I just, I still do not understand the reasons or why sometimes Florida cats get discounted. And, and the more I work with producers in the state, I realize that that's not always the case. And there's really successful examples of, of strategic alliances to, to add value to Florida Cat. To, to wrap up that part of my, my program, as you see I'm very passionate, uh, maybe even more than, than the method one to, to some extent. I think Uh, There are opportunities at least in Panhandle with with, uh, corn and sorghum silages that I'm exploring currently. So we have uh, a couple of studies going on comparing corn and sorghum silage uh, in backgrounding and heifer development. Those two go hand in hand. Uh, So uh, providing opportunities to perhaps at a lower uh, feed cost, try to develop heifers or add weight to uh, wean calves and then be able to produce the, the premium product that then the feedlots out Southwest can, can do uh, what they are known best to do. And not to say we don't have successful people feeding cattle in Florida, we do, but it's certainly a challenging environment. After two years, that I live in the panhandle of Texas. I realize why we feed cattle in those areas, and, and uh, the challenges that we have here are great, but we have some a very group of successful producers doing it in, in, in a very cost-effective way. So, anyway, even even to those producers, if we could add value to our calves and then get them to a point where they can enter the feedlot with lower risk of health uh, challenges and things like that, I think we we probably could increase the overall profitability of, of, of Florida beef production. So, anyway, I extended a little bit on that, but you can see I'm very passionate about this this effort.
0: Yeah, that's great information. And, and, Nicholas, you are also in charge of the, the Mariana bull test that has been going on for a while. Can you please give us a little update on, on the situation of the bull test, Mariana?
1: Sure, sure. sure. No, that's, a, that's another, bro- perhaps, is the the extension project that keeps me the busiest uh, and, uh, it is really the, is the Florida, the, the Florida bull test that started, uh, well, over 20 years ago this year, um, about a little less than a month ago, we finished our 21st, uh, anniversary. We finished the sale of the 21st Florida bull test. So it, it's a program basically that, that consists, it, it's an extension program, but it basically consists in taking bulls from consigners in the area, purebred. And in the area, it's a very loose term because we take bulls as far as Mississippi, uh, South Georgia, we take taken some years from, from North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, but mostly I would say Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, and Mississippi. So we take bulls from consigners. Uh, we feed them for 112 days. The bull test consists of the first 56 days there are under uh, feed efficiency facility that you might have heard, people might have heard me talk a lot about that. Basically what, what it is, is a 24-pen um, confinement operation in which we have this technology called GrowSafe safe that basically is the feed bank on load cells. So cattle, by way of an RFID, they approach the bank and then that bank becomes alive, if you will, and start recording. Uh, they change of weight in that tub. So basically what we get with that is individual feed intake and bulls are housed in groups of 10 to 13 animals per pen. And that's sort of the, the beauty of that program is to be able to capture individual uh, intake. We uh, typically receive anywhere from 100 to 130 bulls uh, every year from, from all those areas that I, that I mentioned. And uh, the producer basically consigned their, their, their bulls. Um, There's some health requirements for that, uh, some uh, age requirements. In other words, those bulls have to be born uh, between uh, August 15 and the end of the year of the previous year at, uh, when the bull uh, uh, test is beginning. We usually receive bulls in uh, mid to late July and then they go all the way to, to the first uh, weeks of December. So uh, we always uh, hold our uh, sale in January, uh, around the third weekend uh, weekend in January, and, and we and we've been very successful in uh, and both with the performance of those bulls and in, the, in terms of what that sale brings to the region. My personal goal with the with the test, and we have a, a really active uh, group of an advisory board that, that provides input on this. And that's, this is very important to me. This is the instrumental part of the test, is that advisory board. The important part of the, the test is it provides uh, uh, performance proven goals to the area that producers can access, that a, at a uh, commercial producer might be able to access uh, at a fair price, uh, but also promotes the adoption of technology. So that's what we would like to go. The adoption of technologies such as genomic enhanced CPE, uh, parent verification, etc. That we were hoping that we move in the direction of uh, improving the overall uh, genetics of southeast southeastern uh, beef cattle. So that the whole. Goal of that program is just to provide superior genetics, and we have the ability to at least uh, show or, or measure the feed efficiency portion. That's why we put so much emphasis on feed efficiency. Um, to date, uh, we are uh, we are actually we just this year passed the 2,000 bulls tested since the inception of the bull test in in 2000, and the, the test has been evolving from. Uh, the very first origins, I was not even around here. I've only been part of that for the, the half of those 20 years. And uh, we used to have them in pasture. Now we evolved to have them in the feed efficiency facility, which has been uh, tremendous in terms of the data that we can provide. We also give them, uh, when we weigh bull, we give a report to the consigners, And consigners have the opportunity to have two uh, breeding sound is exam performed by a uh, veterinarian, a local veterinarian. So the the whole idea is that those bulls that are purchased through the cell, then they have to qualify in terms of growth and pass the BSc in, in order to, to qualify. Those bulls, uh, they go through the cell, then at least uh, we, we can provide bulls that have been proven in terms of genetics and also are able to breed cows. So that it's been a fascinating project to me that the one that I uh, we, we keep trying to do something different every year, and we've been uh, getting really good feedback from consigners and for local, from local producers. So we're, we're, we're certainly hoping it continues, and I think it will. This year was particularly challenge, uh, challenging on that. We had restrictions on, in terms of the sale and in-person attendance, but uh, despite that, we had a very successful sale with record performance and, and really good prices considering where we are in the market. So so we're we're very happy about that. And yeah, thanks for asking about that program because sometimes I I, I forget, but from December to well, December to January, that's almost hundred percent of my time is dedicated to to the Florida bull test. Or I feel that way.
0: And and Nicholas yeah, we, we are going towards the end of our conversation here. So when you were not uh, working at the research center Mariana, do you have any hobbies that you you do on a uh, frequent basis? Do you have time for that? I, I, I have to
1: make that. Yeah, I, I love to play soccer. Um, uh, I, I love that whenever I, we actually do play sometimes with the students and other professors here in the, in the center. Um, I uh, as any good uh, Argentinian, I grew up with with soccer, so that's, that's I'm very passionate about that. Uh, I love fishing. I used to fish a lot back in Minnesota, and here I'm learning the new the whole saltwater freshwater thing. Uh, it's a it's a little trickier, but I I love fishing. Uh, grilling, I've always been passionate about that, but the uh, COVID put a new uh put put new challenges, and uh, I was uh, I got into learning how to smoke uh, different things, risk it, et cetera. So I, that became uh, more of a passion for me lately. And then spend time with, with my family. Uh, we, we do get to enjoy a lot the, the Florida Panhandle and all the, the nature that we have around that. So, but yeah, I, I need to make more time for that, but it's, that's very important.
0: Yes, I agree. And Nicholas, I would like to thank you very much for participating in the podcast today. I am Joe Vendramini.
1: Joe what?